Okay. Well, we shall begin. Um, have you guys been getting done by 8? Okay. Perfect. So, we are... Um, we're now about halfway through the creed. And when Scott wrote the schedule, how we kind of plan this stuff out is we all send Scott, the most organized of all of us, our summer travel schedules, and then he makes it out. And he specifically gave me the one where we're dealing with the line, he descended to hell, as a, as a joke on me. So the one, the most complicated line in here, although I really don't think it's that complicated, but it is the most frustrating one for many people. But before we get there... Um, now that we've made it halfway through, did anyone grow up in a tradition that used the creed on a regular basis? What tradition did you grow up with, London? Presbyterian. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. So, did, did anybody grow up, like, Christian church or, uh, or, uh, Church of Christ? Oh, no. Christian church? Well, it's like a non-denominational. Well, like I mean, restoration movement. Like we'd we'd rather like swallow our own tongue than say this movement. No, I don't think so. Okay. Did you grow up Christian church? No one did. Wow, we're Methodist. Okay, that's cool. I didn't grow up Christian church either. Um, so. Whenever I first, like Sunnybrook's the first tradition, or the first church that I've ever been a part of in the restoration movement, where this is a bit of a, an issue, and so I, it took me a while to figure out why we were so bent out of shape about it, but Drew, in the first week, kind of explained all that well, I think. Um, so, what value has this had, though, for those of you that grew up? Um, reciting. Was this like a weekly recitation in your in your worship service, or was it like just something that more of a statement of faith that your church is held to? We would do different creeds and different. Like we would do like what's the chief end of man for the Westminster. Yeah, we would mm-hmm. do like all different things. And for me, like growing up, I didn't always understand it, but I just thought it was beautiful. And I thought just everyone saying the same things at the same time made it feel very unified. That's cool. Yeah, they said something every It was it was part of the memorized liturgy, right? Did you guys do every week? No, one every week. It was probably once a month, kind of like we did communion. Just sort of that confession of faith. Okay, is that the same? You So, those of you who did not grow up with this, what have your thoughts been as we've worked through it then? Do you find it valuable, or is it just like a simple statement, and we're not really sure why it's such a big deal? Andrew, you like it? Yeah. I love it too. Yeah, I do too. I like it. Danny, your thoughts? Yeah, I like it. Andrew? I like it. It's short and concise. Frames, helps the frames of the core beliefs instead of pulling out an entire Bible and trying to judge it. Yeah. 
One of the ways that I think about it is like take a, a show that everybody's familiar with, like one of those just ubiquitous television shows, like Seinfeld or Friends or Mash or Cheers. Any any shows that like I don't have to wonder if people have heard of it. You might not have been the biggest fan of Seinfeld, but every walking human being in the United States has like some frame of reference for what Seinfeld is. It actually influenced a lot of modern humor. I mean, it was that kind of a groundbreaking show. Like, but ask anyone what Seinfeld's about, and you get a variety of answers. And that's what I don't like. I don't like that it's really just kind of left up to, well, you know, I appreciated this about Jason Alexander, or, or I really, really loved this about Michael Richards. And it's like, well, no, but what's the show about? And I love the Creed because you have a, a like a, a very tightly controlled elevator speech on what is the gospel. Like I love it, it's, if we were to go around here and say, what's the gospel, London? But what we could do, yeah, you're trying to figure out is it short or longer. What I like is like this is. This I would say this is a a incredibly summarized, borderline incomplete version of the gospel, but it's about as good as we could all be on the same page together with having. And I love you. You mentioned I love the uh, like the you called it the like the universality of it, or that we were all saying it together. I, what I love about the Apostles' Creed, because it's a say a third, fourth century document, I love that whenever I read this or recite it, or um, I, I kind of view it as like a better version of the Pledge of Allegiance. I love that I am now in union with Christians across millennia, confessing the faith that they did. Like I love that Tertullian and um, Anselm and Thomas Aquinas, like they they confessed the same thing that I did. I just love that. Um, one of the things I was going to show you guys is an example of how the creed. Before we get into kind of explaining the lines that we're dealing with, how the creed can be used in a liturgy. So we we've got the the Presbyterian and the Methodist and the Catholic. So it would it would just be kind of a, a weekly affirmation of the faith, or we use it on uh, on a more of a irregular basis. But it is part of our identity. Um, another example is is the Anglican, the Anglican Church. So the Anglican Church, just for example, is the um, the North American wing of the Church of England. And um, I'm like you. I love high liturgies. I really think that church is best done when the the minister is in a bit of a dress with a collar. I love that. And uh, what I really love is I love its formality. Um, as someone who can be a little silly at times, I love almost the forced reverence of this style of worship. And in the in the Anglican Church, I didn't bring a copy. I should have brought a copy, but um, their their liturgy is driven by what's known as the Book of Common Prayer, and um, they just call it the prayer book. But the Book of Common Prayer was written by Thomas Cranmer, an English pastor, in the 1500s, and it's literally like. It governs their services. And so throughout the week, they'll have morning prayers, they'll have evening prayers, they'll have 
a liturgy for Sundays, a liturgy for Easter, a liturgy for every single holiday, the prayer book just tells you what to do. And you are praying your theology. That's one of the things they love to talk about. Our theology is not just theology that we know. We pray our theology. And, and a lot of it is based out of the Psalms. And this, the, the creed, is a daily affirmation of their faith. So, here is kind of how it would work. If we were to do a... a um, well, actually, what I have here are the details for the morning prayer that would have been on Sunday. They have every single day of the year marked out. Um, so, you would have an opening verse, which is basically a psalm inviting everyone into... The service. And, and one interesting thing about these morning, say the morning prayer service. Everybody is participating. Have you ever wondered, like, at, at, you know, at Sunnybrook, like it or not, good or bad or indifferent, it is often, except for worship and, say, communion and, and offering, it's kind of we sit and, and take in. But in the Anglican Church, actually their services, uh, in terms of their sermons, are very short. Like 15 minutes. They're actually not even, they don't even call them sermons, they call them homilies. They're like short expositions on Scripture. And some of you who sit through like Jim's really long sermon on Sunday, last Sunday, might think, we could do better to go that direction a little bit. But their services are far more participatory than they are sit and listen. And so this opening verse, if I'm, if I'm the priest in the, in the Anglican church, I'm inviting you guys to, to participate in worship. And then what you'll all do is you'll pull out your kneelers. And if you're able, you'll get down on your knees and we will together confess our sins out loud. And some people will be very specific about their own personal sins and others will just be reading from the prayer book this written confession of sin. But what I love about it is every single time you walk into the chapel, you are, you are declaring who God is and who you are and how much you need Him before we ever get into worship. And it just kind of centers you down. And, and so they'll do the confession, and then they'll have another psalm. You see, they love the psalms, which kind of sets off the worship. And then they'll have lessons. And they, what they call lessons is literally just reading a few verses out of number 6 on Sunday was the, was the lesson for that day. Number 6, Acts 13, and Luke 12. Every single time they, they enter into the chapel, they will read a passage from the Old Testament, a passage from um, Acts or the Epistles, and then a passage from a Gospel. And there's no commentary. Like, I, if I, if I, if um, th- we were at this part of the service, and I'm a deacon, I would come up, I would open this massive pulpit Bible, and I would just say a reading from the Book of Numbers, chapter six. And and you guys aren't going to open your Bibles. You'll just sit there. Most people sit there with their eyes closed and just let Scripture wash over them. And I will read it, and then I'll finish by saying, "This is the word of the Lord." And you would say. Praise be to God. And everybody knows, like, and, and it's, it's you're interacting with the priests and with the deacons. Um, so they'll have the lessons. They will have a canticle. A canticle is a psalm that is sung with no instruments. And the person that does this is called the cantor. 
And what they'll do is they'll come up and they'll flip to say like Psalm 100. And they will intone a refrain. They'll sing a refrain for everybody to kind of memorize a real easy little line. And then we'll all sing it with them. And then they will, with no musical accompaniment, sing the psalm. And it sounds like this. It's real weird. And some cantors are really good and some are horrible. But nevertheless, we're hearing like the, the Bible songbook being sung to us. And then every, every five or six verses, they would gesture to the congregation and we'll sing the line that we've just learned. And in so doing, we've, we've invited everyone to worship with a song. We've confessed sin by actually quoting scripture. We've read another psalm. We've read Numbers 6 and Acts 13 thus far. We would have sung a psalm together, and then they would do the, the follow-up lesson in the evening prayer. They would read the, the Gospel of Luke, verse, uh, chapter 12. And then the priest would say, let's all affirm our faith. And we will all stand up at attention, and together recite the Apostles' Creed as a bit of a Christian Pledge of Allegiance. And, and we, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, but no, if, you, if you're part of this tradition, you know it better than the Pledge of Allegiance. And everybody is weekly, sometimes daily, if you go to morning and evening prayers, confessing your allegiance to Jesus. And then, don't sit down yet, because we are together going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And then, we will have a period of intercessions, which means that while standing, anyone as you feel led can now pray out loud for the people that you know in your life that need prayers. Or, people you don't know. And what I love about it, so in, at my school, I go to an Anglican school, that's why I get so jazzed about this. Um, <laughs> At my school, we're in chapel. There's like 150 of us. You'll hear anything from my dog is sick to please free pastor so-and-so who is in prison in Iran. And you just hear like five minutes of us praying for the saints, praying for God's will to be done on earth. And you can see how they structure this because notice how we start to pray for what we need after we've just prayed for what we need. After we've just affirmed that we are those who, because of our beliefs, can pray for what we need and pray on the behalf of others. And then they'll have a collect. It looks like collect, but it's a collect, which is um, basically like a seasonal hymn that is just like one line of a psalm. Again, they love the psalms. Like, that's pronounced over you. So on Sunday... This is how we would have ended the service. If I were the priest, I would say, O oh God, you make us glad with the weekly remembrance of the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And then I would give a benediction, and the service is over. But all that to show, so benediction would come at the end. All that to show... This isn't just an interesting little passage of 11, 12 ideas that exist just out there. It's a very real part, a robust part of liturgies across the world. And those of you who have grown up PCA or Methodist or Catholic or, say, Lutheran or Church of England or Anglican 
or Episcopal or virtually anything except like Protestant evangelicalism, um, especially non-denominational evangelicalism. Like this is one of the few unifying things across the church. It's one of the few remainders of Catholicity in the church. Anybody else ever kind of lament the fracturous nature of all the denominations? It drives me crazy. Now, I, I get why it happened, and I don't disagree with the fact that it happened and the reason it needed to happen, but I do, in many ways, lament what's, what we have now. Um, there just seems to be a real lack of unity, but really, these two things sit as um, those unifying ideas in the liturgy and worship across Christendom. Um, so, it's a real part, and, and again, all of this is prescribed per the Book of Common Prayer, which I actually personally use for my devotional studies. Um, I like it because it doesn't let me get hung up on my hobby horses. It, left to my own devices, I would just read the Gospel of John for the rest of my life. It would be totally good. And ignore the rest of Scripture. Um, but the Apostles, or sorry, the, the Book of Common Prayer, which you can get an app for like free that will do this, it has the morning and the evening prayer services in there. It also has what's known as the lectionary, which is their preaching calendar, but it also has the daily office. And the daily office is, for the Anglican world, their daily scripture readings. And it follows this. It's the lessons. Number six, if I were to keep writing, it would be Acts 13 and Luke 12. And then the next day would probably be number seven and Acts 14 and Luke 13. And it just kind of keeps you all throughout the scriptures. And, and then psalm, psalm, psalm. Several psalms put together. Psalm. Oftentimes a psalm. Sometimes a historical quote. But um, So if you've ever just thought, I'd like to vary how I engage with scripture on a personal devotional basis. Give the Book of Common Prayer a shot. Again, you can just find like apps on your phone and... Um, um, you could just search the daily office, and every day you'll get the readings for that day. And back to the, the the universality of the creed, I love that whenever I'm doing this, I am reading the same, reading and praying through and meditating on the same scriptures that millions of people across the world are praying and reading through and meditating on. And I'm enough of a, a closet mystic to really enjoy that. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love that. Um, so... One of the things interesting, is, and I don't know about your experience in the Methodist Church, but memorize, you had to memorize the Apostles' Creed as part of confirmation, but nobody has ever unpacked it for me to the same, obviously to the same degree we're doing here, but even for me to appreciate it in a way outside of, oh, just memorize it because that's how you go through confirmation, that I my appreciation or reverence of it or true understanding, you know, why it was developed originally really hasn't happened until now, which I think is, I don't know if it was just maybe our church, we didn't have... Yeah, I don't know how, like, the process of confirmation, if it is more about shoving the information in, maybe more than explaining why we... And, you know, it's different, so maybe they did, <laughs> I just forgot, but I don't know. Do you remember, did they teach it? They didn't have as many... 
was about yeah. it, exactly. Um, I mean, I ended up Well, you know, a big difference is that um, in the more mainline traditions, they assume the scriptures, and they'll de- they'll default to this because it's 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 e- more easy to deliver. Um, I'm this summer I've committed to working on hopefully finishing a catechesis for Sunnybrook, a way of growing up new disciples from conversion to on the path of maturity. And so I'm I'm buying up like the Anglican Church's catechesis. I went to the Catholic Church and talked to Father Brian O'Brien and got their catechesis and I'm pulling in all of these things and the the norm across the board is catechesis is um, you learn the apostles creed to form your doctrine. You learn the Lord's Prayer to form your spiritual discipline. And you learn the Ten Commandments to form your kind of moral compass. And, and they, that's how they grow new believers, by working through those things. And I'm talking with Jim about how do we start to incorporate that. Because that, that framework really isn't Sunnybrook. We would, t- we would take all of that, but that's not really our, our way of doing things. And he said the difference between many mainline traditions and us is... They'll take the creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and assume a biblical literacy there and just start at that point. And he says, we don't ever assume the scriptures. We teach them obnoxiously, slowly, and to the nth degree, and as deep as we possibly can. And we get to the Lord's Prayer, or we get to the Ten Commandments. And so as we're kind of working through with what it would look like for us to have like a curriculum... To, we're not interested in necessarily confirmation, so to speak, but we are looking at how, what's our basic teaching for someone who's just now coming to the faith. And, and that's the tension we're working with, is they can start with the end products. And, th- and our style is almost to um, not necessarily teach the Lord's Prayer from day one, but to teach how to read Matthew's Gospel. And thus, the Lord's Prayer has value. Or to teach, like we're doing here, the biblical support for every idea in the Apostles' Creed, more so than just memorizing the Apostles' Creed. We'd say memorizing it is valuable. But if I, if you were to say, uh, with no scriptural study behind it, well, no, that's not what we're interested in. So, it is, though, I think a very helpful, like I said, concise... It, it's not a biblical document, in the sense that it's not inspired... But it is inspired by biblical ideas. So it's not unbiblical, but it's not It's not inspired either. So, okay. So the line you can see it there on the back that we're dealing with tonight is that Jesus descended to hell, and then on the third day he rose again. Uh, you'll see that we'll spend the vast majority of our time tonight dealing with the idea of descending to hell. Because while the resurrection is wonderful, in fact, it defines our very being, Paul would say, um, and it is central to the faith, it is also 
um, rather easily accepted and understood, and needs uh, it doesn't need nearly as much explanation as the he descended to hell, or as it says on um, uh, on other versions of the creed, he descended to the dead. Um, even some versions of the creed, like if you're from a really Wesleyan tradition, depending on what branch of the Methodist Church you're from, they wouldn't have this line in there at all. So, and if you're, I mean, somewhat Methodist traditions don't have it, and we can talk about why. But, um, what are we confessing here when we say that that he descended to hell? What are some of our initial thoughts? What are what are the options as to what this could possibly mean? we'll actually find that it's a, a probably a mashup of several things. Took on our sin. And the hell part, you would say, is more like the darkness or the evil nature of the sin that maybe the creed is getting at. Okay, what else? Or it could be he's just separated from the Father. So hell equals Separation. I never know if it's E A or R A R. Separation from the Father. When I hear the word hell, I always think of like the boiling pit of lava. So I'm thinking maybe Sheol, which is like the Jewish word, which is sort of gives me a different idea, which is sort of like you know, kind of death or sleeping until. Resurrection. So, Sheol would be the land of the dead? Contrasted against more a hell of judgment? Yes. Now, like I said, some versions of the creed will have hell. Some will have dead. So you're probably getting pretty close. Um, the Wesleyan tradition, which would include Methodism... Um, does uh, some of those those branches of the Wesleyan tradition don't have it at all, because this line is not original to the creed. Um, just like in the Lord, oh, the Lord's Prayer, the last line for "Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever." Amen. It's not part of the prayer. We still say it because it just sounds really good, and it's like a great way to end um, instead of ending with "and lead me not into temptation." Uh, protect me from the evil one. It's like, oh, that really ended on a dark note. Let's put something really nice at the end there. That, that's kind of what we have here with the creed. This, this line did not come in. If the creed is, say, second, third, at the latest, fourth century, uh, it kind of comes into its, its form here. This line, he descended to hell or to the land of the dead, did not come in until the fifth century, maybe, and it didn't become as, at like, ubiquitous across the, the European continent and northern Africa until as late as the 7th and 8th centuries. So this is a very new addition to the creed. Um, but let's not get sidetracked by the fact that it's late, because that doesn't mean that early Christians didn't agree with it. Um, 
Paul had no word for the Trinity. Doesn't mean that he was not triune in his doctrine. But the words that we use for the Trinity did not, we, we had to invent those words, and that didn't come up for several hundred years after Paul. So it doesn't, just because it's late doesn't mean it's bad. But here's where it gets even trickier. Um, and I think you're, you're right on with this. I, I, think, I think this stuff is part of it. Again, I think it's, it's all of this together. But hell equaling the land or the, I guess I should say, the realm of judgment Seventeenth century is when we started using hell that way. Beforehand, hell meant this. Hell was the Hebrew word Sheol, or the the Greek word Hades. For the first sixteen hundred years of the church, that's what they meant when they used the, a phrase that was like when they uh, an English word like hell. They were referencing just where you go when you die. And then later on, it started to be used as Gehenna, which is the New Testament phrase for the land of judgment, where sinners go for their final place. You had the place of the dead, and then the place where sinners are judged. And hell is used for both. Early, it meant this. Later, it meant this. And so, given the time period in which the creed was developed, we cannot say that Jesus descended to the land of those being judged. Rather, the creed is saying that he went to the land of the dead. And so what it does is it kind of removes all of this mystery and scandal from this particular line. Um... In, in essence, what we're confessing is that Jesus really died. Over and against other theories that say that maybe he, he just kind of passed out on the cross, and that after a, a little while of just bleeding in a tomb, he, he kind of was resuscitated. Um, over and against other theories that say that he, um, his death was faked, and... and um, it was actually somebody else that was crucified in his place. And there are theories of the resurrection that say that he never actually resurrected, but he, you know, his followers, 500 people, actually hallucinated the same thing, which is statistically just impossible. But it's a, it's a theory out there. And what we're confessing with these two lines, he descended to hell, and then on the third day he rose again from the dead, we are confessing that Jesus really died, it was no simulated death, and that he really rose. He was dead, and now he is alive. That is simply what the, what the creed is saying here. So, what's our biblical support? One of the things that you'll notice in the creed, and, and you've probably picked up on this already, is it has a bit of a what's known as a chiastic structure, which means it moves. So, like, if you've ever studied poetry, like, A relates to A prime over here, B relates to B prime, and then C is kind of the central point. So this is an early, in verse 1, correlates to verse 5, verse 2 correlates to verse 4, and then 3, because it's in the center, is kind of the point of it all. 
the biblical writers loved doing this. Especially the, that great hymn in Philippians 2, where Jesus begins in glory, descends all the way down to the bowels of the earth, and then ascends again to glory. Paul is highlighting the crucifixion and the death and the, the, the sacrificial work here at the middle. And he is drawing our eyes back up. In fact, let's, let's just read that real quick. There's never a bad time to read Philippians 2. Philippians 2. So, it starts in verse 5 um, of Philippians 2 and goes all the way um, really to verse 11. And Philippians is a book about a number of things. Joy, um, unity, and, and following Christ's example of service, especially when it comes to humility. And so Paul uses this picture that says that a, a willing humility actually ends up in exaltation, which is a very prominent theme in St. John's Gospel. But he says here in Philippians 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, looking at Jesus as an example, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so notice how high it starts, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself. So there's the first step down. By taking the form of a servant. Step down again. Being born in the likeness of men. If you're God and now you're born in the likeness of men, that's another step down. Being found in human form. Step down. Humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Step. And even death on a cross. Step down to the very bottom. Remember in Philippi, a, a Roman colony out on the fringes of the empire. This, the, the cross is a shameful idea. This is, this is that, that word we don't say. This is that thing that's only reserved for the filthiest of the filthy. And, and so Paul goes from God to the thing that we must not mention. And then he comes back up. Therefore God has highly exalted him, lifting him up, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Next step up. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Next step up. Well, how far should all this worship go? Well, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's another step up. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Step up to the glory of God the Father. That's the highest you could possibly go. Paul starts at the Godhead, goes all the way down to the cross, and goes back up to God the Father. The creed follows that same pattern. We're in the middle of the creed. And we've just hit the cross. We've hit the grave. And then the resurrection, and it's going to go right back up to glory. You can even see next week we're going to talk about his ascension back into heaven. Him being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then he is now standing as the judge over all things living and dead. Before we leave Philippians 2, I'll just point out one of my favorite little Trinitarian Easter eggs. Um, is, I love this line. God is highly exalted, and this is Philippians 2.9. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? What is the highest possible name in existence? It is Yahweh. And this is one of the clearest spots where Paul says Jesus is Yahweh. I love this line. It is one of those most unmistakable sections in Paul's letter where Jesus is always being given worship, but it's always Jesus and the Father. And, and Paul often holds the God, he's talking about the Godhead in multiple persons, but here they overlap so clearly. 
I just love that particular line that Jesus has the name that is above every name. And I just remember a few years ago reading through a commentary, getting ready to teach this, and they just they just had one short little question in the middle of this big long page. It said, "In what name would that be?" And it just floored me to think about that. That would be Yahweh. Jesus equals Yahweh, according to Paul two and Paul in Philippians two. So there. The biblical support, you can see, I think the creedal writers are trying to do very something very similar. Philippians 2 is the only place where you see this kind of stuff happening. But um, I think this has a very Philippians 2 shape. In fact, much of what Philippians 2 is saying about Jesus is actually in the creed. So that's certain biblical support. In terms of the actual death, um, Matthew 12, verses 38 through 39 and 40. Jesus tells that his death and resurrection, following after the pattern of Jonah, you recall, three days in the whale, that that would be one of the greatest signs that proves that he is the only Son of God. And Jesus is following, I think, Jewish tradition, which views like life in the grave as being down below. It's not like Jesus actually thinks that like Hades or Sheol is below him. But using the vernacular of those he's teaching, first century Jewish context, that's like life down in the ground is the life of the dead. And he's using the Jonah story in Matthew 12 to say, I'm going to actually die. And then whenever I come back three days later, that is going to be all the proof you need that I am actually the Son of God. He calls it way back in in Matthew 12. Um, Jesus was fully human, and so the gospel accounts tell us about him having a fully human death, and that's something the Apostles' Creed felt they need to highlight. Great question to ask yourself um, when you're analyzing the Creed is, why would those who put this together view whatever line as essential for the church to know and confess together? It's a short document, so they, they were very selective about what made it in there. And here they just thought, okay, we have to, like, it is so intrinsic to our faith that Jesus was a human being who died an actual human death. And and before we leave here tonight, we'll we'll explain why it had to be that way. It had to be that way, at least according to the early church accounts. Um, One passage that we won't labor long over, but it, it gets brought up whenever we come to this line, is first. Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. It's important to remember, Peter is writing to the churches in um, northern Asia Minor. So, modern-day Turkey, very north side. Um, They're not being persecuted necessarily to death, but they are being persecuted in terms of their being removed from their trade guilds and they're being socially ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. And so he's writing 1 Peter to encourage them, not that it's going to get better, but just that, hey, it's your job to suffer well. One of those real warm letters you get from the Apostle Peter that says, hey, it's going to suck, deal with it. That was his message. And he's giving you instructions saying, again, we're going to follow Jesus' model of suffering well. And he starts in verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Which is just such an apostolic dig. Saying, oh you think you have it bad? Jesus also suffered. And he was righteous. 
You suffer for, for unrighteous London here. So let's not feel too bad for ourselves, but let's follow our, our Savior who suffered well. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then verses 19 and 20 are where we get hung up sometimes, because it continues. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then, if that's not confusing enough, he goes into a little bit about baptism and its connection to the ark and all of that. Now, last time I taught through this, I remember like this... This passage took so much more work to figure out than the rest of the letter combined, probably. But, verses 19 and 20 have nothing to do with the creed. And so, given that we have 14 minutes left, we're not going to go into this. We can talk about that later. But sometimes we we look at things, we do a great job of reading contextually, and in so doing we get distracted. Because all that the biblical writers are trying to point us to is verse or all that the creedal writers are trying to point us to, is verse 18, where Peter says, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter wants them to know that, look, Jesus, did, his, his suffering was not any easier than yours because he was divine. He was fully human. And thus he died an actual human death. So, the common middle age view, by the way, just to give you a, a sense of why verses 19 and 20 is confusing, is that Jesus commissioned the apostles to go and start the church, and therefore now the rest of the world is going to hear the gospel through their preaching as they take it to the ends of the earth, right? Acts 1, 8, and 9. And, but not everyone before Jesus had such a luxury. So now Jesus is going to go down into hell and preach to all the imprisoned saints and, and say Cassie's died 20 years ago and Jesus has just now been crucified. He went down there and preached the gospel to her and said, are you sure? This doesn't seem like a great choice. You should follow me. But that is, that is such a strained interpretation of what the scriptures are actually getting at. But, nevertheless, it was a common view in the Middle Ages. And so, a lot of this Middle Age biblical interpretation has heaped a lot of baggage on the, on the creed. And the creed is just interested in this human death. That's what it's trying to underscore. So... Um, one of the big, big things that I think the apostolic uh, writers and then the, the writers of the Apostles' Creed are trying to get at is um, what happened when Jesus died. So most of us hold to, and I don't think this is wrong, but this is different than what the early church emphasized. Most of us hold to what's known as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning there's like a legal debt to pay, and then substitutionary atonement means somebody else paid the debt in our place. So the, the explanation of penal substitutionary atonement, or just PSA, if you're reading through um, systematic theologies, they'll quickly shorten that up because just the word count's getting out of control. PSA is basically... We were created with free will, with a moral obligation to someone higher than us, namely God. And in our free will, we rebelled against Him, which put us in His debt. And His debt, because He is perfectly righteous, his, all debts to Him must be paid in full. And Penal Substitutionary Atonement says that our debts, all of humanity's debts, had to be paid to God. 
you and I are never going to have enough cash in our account to pay it, basically. And so what God did is he became human himself because it's a human debt. It has to be paid by a human. But one human can only pay for one other human, as Paul will say. So he also has to be God. So you have the God-man who can pay a human debt, but because he's divine, he can pay it infinitely for everyone. And should you believe in Jesus and put your trust in him and follow him with all of your allegiance and all of your heart, then his substitutionary death is credited to your account and your debt is wiped clean. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Which is, I think, makes absolute sense of what the New Testament's trying to teach. And I, and it was always true, but it is not really how the early church thought. They didn't think like that. They probably had bits and pieces of it put together, but this is actually a relatively modern, when I say modern, eight, nine hundred years old idea that's been really heavily shaped. But rather when you ask, say, a, a second century follower of Jesus what happened on, in his death on the cross, they would say he was victorious over evil. Namely, over death. He conquered it. That's really, again... They had these, these beliefs in here because these beliefs are just distilled from Scripture. So it's not like Paul had no concept of a debt. Read his language, it's in there. But when, when asked what does primarily is taking place when, when Jesus dies on the cross, it's victory, he, he is victor, victorious over evil and he has defeated death. Um... They, they saw the human predicament, the early church, more in terms of we were enslaved to sin. Again, this is just biblical language. We were in bondage to evil. And so, here's some interesting... Irenaeus is a, like a second century theologian. Here's his description of what took place on the cross. It says, For Jesus fought and conquered, and through obedience, doing away with disobedience completely. For he bound the strong man and set free the weak. Irenaeus is just using language from the Gospels, by the way. And endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin. He never does, like, you're, you can, it's very difficult to find early records of people talking about debts being paid and credited to Danny's account. Rather, it's she is enslaved to evil and that which binds her has been destroyed and now she has been freed up to live to God. That's, that's a bit more of how they, they talked about it. He continues describing the need for Jesus to both be human and God. He says, Jesus caused man to cleave to and to become one with God. For unless man had overcome the enemy of man, so he's saying, okay, Satan is man's enemy. He is, he's God's enemy too, but we are in bondage to him. Therefore, a man needs to defeat him. I don't know if I buy the logic, but that's what he thought. He says, For unless man had overcome the enemy of man, the enemy could not have been legitimately vanquished. And again, unless it had been God who had freely given salvation, we could never have possessed it securely. So he says, in essence, mankind needed to defeat Satan, and lest we fall back into the same predicament we were already in, it needed to be God who also defeats Satan so that it's finalized. So this is... They thought differently. 
So you can see how when they, they put the creed together, they would say, he had to go down into the land of the dead in order to defeat death. That's what we're emphasizing when Jesus dies on the cross. Um, here's one way that a, a writer put it. He said, the descent down, again, here and in Philippians 2, the descent to the early church was more than the natural result of death. It's more than just that's what happens when you die. It was also Jesus entering the headquarters of evil to destroy its power. I love that. I don't know. I just I think that sounds so great. Another commentator said this. He said, if we were writing what the creed the creedal writers were trying to communicate here, with he descended to hell and then on the third day he rose again from the dead, if we were to write that in more of a modern expanded narrative, he said it would look like this. Jesus became incarnate and entered a world dominated by evil. And at the cross, it seems as though the devil won. The devil took home a neatly wrapped package that seemed his greatest prize and smugly locked it in his safe. But the package was a time bomb and three days later. And, and, and I like what, what he's trying to communicate. The, the, the writers are getting at Jesus, one of his mission. One of the aspects of his, his commissioning by the Father to become incarnate is to deal with this and this. So in his death, he went there and destroyed it with his resurrection. There is this... Um, so if this is one theory of the atonement, this theory is called... It's a Latin term. Christus Victor. It was one of the most prominent ways of describing Jesus' work on the cross for, for many, many years early in the church is the victorious Christ. Um, just so you know where the biblical support is for the resurrection, we have five minutes left to talk about the resurrection. But again, I'm assuming that we're kind of on board here with the, the rising again on the third day. The gospel accounts in Matthew 27 and 28, in Mark 15 and 16, in Luke 23 and 24, in John 19, 20 and 21, and then in Acts 1 and 2. Matthew 27, 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23, 24, John 19 through 21, Acts 1 and 2. Over the next week, it would, it would warm and nourish your soul to go and read all five of those accounts. And you'll likely notice some discrepancies between that you may not have ever seen if you haven't done a direct comparison. Take heart, because those discrepancies are, in terms of biblical criticism and studies of how texts come together, some of the most um, glaring affirmations of the genuine nature of these accounts. Because if, if the five of us were to get together and make up a fake story, it would seem too cohesive. But if the five of us are eyewitnesses or talking to eyewitnesses of the same story, we're all going to tell largely the same story with a few different perspectives. Their differences are one of their greatest values, I think. Paul testifies to the resurrection in a number of his sermons in the book of Acts, so Acts 13, Acts 17. I love Acts 17 because Paul is preaching to the... Um, to all the, the religious people and the philosophers in Athens, and then later on up at the Areopagus. And they accuse him 
I, I love this. They accuse him of preaching about foreign divinities, plural. Namely, this Jesus and this resurrection person. I love that the resurrection is so part of, God, of Paul's message that they think he's talking about another God, which is conceivable in the Greek language because... The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, from which we get the name Anastasia. Um, and so, when he's talking about Jesus um, in, in Greek, Jesus and Anastasis, they, he's, it's just one is what this one did. But he's talking about the resurrection so much, like, he's talking about this other God, Jesus, and then this one, resurrection, Paul won't shut up. And it just tells me so much about what his gospel presentation was all about. Um, but in Acts 13, and again in Acts 17, he's preaching about it. In Acts 26, he's preaching about it. In Romans 4, verses 23, 24, and 25, he actually says, this is so fascinating, Jesus was raised for our justification. In saying that, Paul says, it wasn't just Jesus' death that justifies you before God. If he doesn't get out of the grave, you are still, as he'll say elsewhere, still dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses. Jesus is, and, and which really highlights this. It was in his resurrection that the victory was finally won. It was more than just a death. It was a death and a resurrection. So you can see how these things almost require one another. Death and resurrection. <coughs> and then, of course, Romans 6, he connects the resurrection to your baptisms. And in Romans 8, he connects the resurrection to your ability to live life in the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 15, especially in the first about eight verses, he testifies to the earliest eyewitness testimony of what Jesus did in the Gospel accounts. The first... Let's see. Let me look at it real quick. I don't want to lie to you. The first... Oh, these pages are too thin. Um... The first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15 are considered some of the oldest tradition in the New Testament in terms of this is the earliest eyewitness account that Paul is just reminding them of what was delivered to him. Um, let's see here. We're out of time. Um, one of the ways, I had other ways, but we're going to skip straight to the end. One of the ways that this really matters to us is um, the need to, because of his death, the need for us to understand that we live resurrection lives now. Um, our own victory over death and our new lives are guaranteed because of Jesus' resurrection, as he says in 1 Corinthians um, 15, verses 12 down through 19. You really should just read all of 1 Corinthians 15 later this week. Um, Jesus says that his resurrection creates the fact that we can now live new lives. Um, and then if you go back into Romans 6, 1 through 11. Romans 6, 1 through 11. Worth reading this week. Our baptisms symbolize the new life now. They tell us that we can actually live new lives now. When we say buried with Christ in baptism and raised again to live a new life. That's no just like simple Christian mantra. It's an actual belief from the book of Romans in chapter 6. 
where Paul says, when you confess Christ and when you have been buried with Him in baptism, you have literally died to your old life and you've been resurrected to live something new. So I'll say this whenever, um, when it's like an apologetics context and people talk about the problem of evil. They talk about just how heinous this world is, how ridiculous it is that whatever is happening at the border and how cruel it is that innocent people die in earthquakes and in fires and and just how brutally evil things are. Um, And they'll ask me, so as a Christian who believes that God is infinitely good and infinitely powerful, how do you deal with the problem of evil? I tell them all the time, I don't have the same problem of evil that you have. Because I'm like, I'm not bound to my own sin. I can actually live a, a righteous life. And when I fall short, there is mercy there. And I have a hope that transcends any sort of destruction that I see in this earth. Any horrible and heinous thing I have to witness, I, I mourn, I lament, and I have hope. I don't have like a dead end concept of what life is. So does that answer your question about the problem of evil? I don't have the same problem that unbelievers have. Because I can actually live a righteous life now and I don't have to be stuck at the mercy of this or this. Because I have this. Because I have this. And, I, and I'm not going to be abandoned to Hades because of this. And it's a frustrating answer for people. <laughs> They feel like I've dodged the question, but what I think I'm trying to do is, I'm not trying to defend God, He needs no defense. I'm trying to say, I have in Him hope that tells me that there's something more beyond this. And then finally, um, I, I think that because of all of that, because of the victory that we've experienced and the victory that we know and we confess in the creed, we need to feel the weight of the gospel. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21 is that famous passage about being ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. Um, We, as beneficiaries of the gospel, now carry the gospel to the world. And I think that, by and large, we're pretty bad at it. And I'm talking about myself, mainly. So let let me beat up on myself for a while, and then if you see yourself in the same light, that's great. Like, I think we're really bad evangelists because I think sometimes we don't feel the weight of the gospel. Because we don't feel like this is that big of a deal or that many people are resigning themselves to that or that a lot of people won't go any farther than that. And I'm like, I walk around with the message that connects you to that and to that and to that. And if I felt the weight of the gospel, I think I'd be a little more upfront with it. So I'm going to leave you with this. This is, um, I always get a little frustrated with pastors because they overuse C.S. Lewis quotes, but this is too good. So this is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Way to Glory. He says this um, regarding the others. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That, like, let that sit on you for a while. You have never interacted with a merely mortal person. Every human being you meet face to face is a supernatural being with a soul. Like that weighs heavily on me. He says, you've never talked to a mere mortal. 
Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, meaning the fleeting. But it is immortals with whom we joke with. That was poorly written. It is immortals um, we work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. And if you know C.S., if you're familiar with his writings, he's, he can be silly. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love as flippancy parodies, parodies merriment. Next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, communion, again, high church guy. Next to the Blessed Sacrament, sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so, each one of us, I'm sure, has encountered death in loved ones, um, in various ways and to varying degrees. Um, but these two lines of the creed, that he descended to hell and on the third day he rose again, should shape our understanding of that. And the reality of the life available in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should affect our urgency to share the gospel. Because for many, um, in fact I'd say for most, they'll only ever experience the first half of that little couplet there. So, I challenge you to um, write down the name of just one person um, with whom you have a relationship but that doesn't know Jesus. And I'm not asking you to go and evangelize them this week, but I am asking you to pray for them. And uh, ask God to, to give you a supernatural love for that person and ask God to direct you in your relationship with that person and pray that they would meet the Jesus described here and be open to the fact that God might use you to mediate this message. So, in light of the Book of Common Prayer, I will close with the benediction from the evening prayer where we to meet in, a, uh, in an Episcopal church tonight. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And because it is the Book of Common Prayer, you know that is Scripture from 2 Corinthians. So, love you guys. Next week, Mackenzie Johnson will make his teaching debut to teach about ascending to heaven and being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So we'll all be waiting with bated breath.